This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. If I asked you how many subscriptions you have, would you be able to list all of them and how much you're paying? If you would have asked me this question before I started using Rocket Money, I would have said yes. But let me tell you, I would have been so wrong. I can't believe how many I had and all the money I was wasting. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year with over 500 million in canceled subscriptions. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. That's rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. Rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. This podcast is supported by FedEx. FedEx offers fast delivery, more visibility, simple returns, and weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. population on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. With FedEx, you get picture-proof of delivery, ensuring you always know where your package is. Returns are simple with packageless and paperless returns. Plus, FedEx Ground is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. So, what are you waiting for? See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Morning. I'm Jane Pauley, and this is Sunday Morning. On this Labor Day weekend, we report on a work in progress. When, how, and how often we go to work. What began as a temporary measure to protect against the pandemic has led to a sea change in the American workplace. Millions of us are working from home, many with little desire to return to the office. Employers are divided on the issue. Some have embraced the commute-free idea. Others have rejected it. And some just don't know what to do, as David Pogue will tell us. Is it time for America's employees to return to the workplace? Every CEO has a different answer. We believe the time is now um, to bring folks back into the office. We are fully remote and have decided that this is gonna be our posture going forward. But these days, it may not matter what the CEO thinks. I don't think you're running out of workers. You're running out of workers interested in working for you. Ahead on Sunday morning, the new meaning of back to the office. What do you know about America's response to the Holocaust? 
What documentarian Ken Burns has learned may surprise you. He'll be talking with Susan Spencer. It's been more than seven decades since the end of World War II, yet some questions are as raw as ever, starting right here at home. How would you characterize America's response? Uh, we failed. You know, we let in more human beings than any other sovereign nation. But if we'd done 10 times that many, I think we would have failed. A new Ken Burns documentary and a closer look at the U.S. response to a humanitarian catastrophe. Coming up on Sunday morning. And much more besides. Nora O'Donnell catches up with Hillary and Chelsea Clinton launching their new look at extraordinary women tackling exceptional challenges. James Brown considers the legacy of late tennis great Arthur Ashe with his wife Jeannie. Plus a look at two larger-than-life figures who made headlines this past week, Mikhail Gorbachev and Princess Diana. It's the first Sunday morning of the new month, September 4th, 2022, and we'll be back in a moment. When COVID restrictions first kept office workers home more than two years ago, working in pajamas was something of a novelty. No longer. We asked David Pogue to help us decide, where do we go from here? As the pandemic subsides, we're going back to flying, back to theaters, back to restaurants. But back to the office? Well, yes and no. We believe the time is now um, to bring folks back into the office, uh, to bring them together. Ryan Williams is the founder and CEO of Cadre, a real estate investment firm in New York City. His employees are back in the office three days a week. I do think that there's no replacement for in-person mentorship, training, guidance for younger employees in particular. I don't think you can replace that virtually. You don't get that serendipitous sort of uh, brainstorming, talking about an idea, and then whiteboarding it uh, virtually. On the other hand, we are fully remote and have decided that this is going to be our posture going forward. And we feel very strongly that it is simply the future of work for a lot of knowledge workers out there. Jeremy Stoppelman is the CEO of Yelp, the business review service. As the pandemic ebbed, he gave his 4,400 workers the option of coming into the office. But they didn't show up. It was something like 1% utilization in all these beautiful offices that we had set up. And nobody came in? Which makes sense. It's, they save on commute, they have more flexibility in their day, they could spend more time with their family, have more time for activities. Like a number of other big businesses, Yelp gave up most of its office space around the country. And that wasn't the only benefit to the bottom line. What we've seen from our employees is productivity has sustained at least as good, if not better. And in fact, our revenue is now higher than it was pre-pandemic. Here's where I get stuck. There are other companies, as you know, who have looked at the same data and drawn exactly the opposite conclusion. Everybody's got to come into the office. Yeah, I mean, it's very confusing to me. We're suddenly able to tap into and hire employees in all 50 states, for example. In fact, we do now have employees in all 50 states. That was impossible in an environment where we were trying to get people into offices. In my mind, if you're not going remote or seriously thinking about it, you're missing out on one of the greatest free lunches in business. Well, it's true. Remote workers get to live anywhere. 
They can adopt a more flexible schedule and they get to avoid the commute, the office politics, and some of the childcare headaches. But it's also true that meeting at the office can be better for spontaneous collaboration and mentoring and building a corporate culture and cultivating a social life. Maybe that's why some companies have gone virtually all remote. Some companies require your full-time presence in person and others request your presence a few days a week. I think we're going through a phase where I would call it an experimental phase. There is no major in any MBA school that I'm, a, I'm aware of that has a, how do you have to change your culture, your recruiting strategy, your supply chain all at the same time. Steve Cadigan is a workplace consultant and author. My advice right now is to really not make a decision for now and ever after, we are this, we are remote, we are going to be hybrid. I don't think you can because you don't know how this is gonna play out in six months. If you ask any executive search firm right now, when we call a candidate, the first question they ask is, is the job remote? The virus presented us for the first time in history, a moment in time where everything was hit, hit pause and everyone stood back and looked at their reality from a different perspective. Gosh darn it, I love shopping on Tuesday and not having to elbow people at the grocery store every Saturday and Sunday. How do we keep people productive, but then how do we keep them from not leaving. You know, with the great attrition, the great resignation, we're seeing a lot of talent leave the workforce in record numbers. Brooke Weddle is a partner at McKinsey, the consultancy. She says that since the pandemic started, the balance of power between management and workers has radically changed. 40% of employees are considering leaving their work in the next three to six months. That is a hard figure to not take seriously as a CEO. And that's not just service jobs like wait Across staff. the board. This conversation ultimately is about, are your workers happy? Yeah, and, and what drives happiness? I mean, they want that belonging. They want to feel valued by their organization and their manager. I think employees are saying, look, we want something different and we want something more meaningful. And I don't see that going away anytime soon. We're having this conversation about jobs that can be done at home or yeah. hybrid. I mean, a nurse, a pilot, a bus driver, they're not going to have any of these options. However, you can still create flexibility for those roles. You can still talk to a bus driver about her connection back to what an organization's purpose is. Those efforts are underway. Already 58% of American workers say they have the option to work from home for at least part of the week. Here, you want the purple one? AT&T Network Center technician Val Wilson isn't among them. In April, after she'd been working at home for two years, AT&T ordered her department back to the office five days a week. My heart sunk. It's almost a slap in the face due to the reason we've been doing the job. It's been proven for those two years. You've patted us on the back for our productivity. To make matters worse, Wilson says that AT&T consolidated three departments onto a single crowded floor of a new building. We're all on edge, so to say. And then all it takes is for one person to cough or sneeze and that anxiety kicks in again because you're like, where did it come from? So your office morale right now is none. Do you think they'll lose some good talent with that approach? We've already lost good talent. When we were forced back in, we've already lost some. Are they in any danger of losing you 
if this situation doesn't get better? I'm sorry. I get emotional <laughs> when that comes up because I feel like I've done so much and put in so much to get to 30 years of service. And to make that decision to leave early, it's painful. As a union steward, Wilson has proposed a hybrid plan to her bosses. She's hopeful that they'll allow working at home two days a week. AT&T told us, we have been very clear that employees would not work from home indefinitely. In the meantime, Yelp CEO Jeremy Stoppelman concedes that the great shift to remote work might strike some traditionalists as radical. It's a crazy idea. I, I totally get that. It, it's a huge transition. It's disruptive to the way that, that we've thought about the office for 100 plus years. You have a lot of employees that are doing their job simply at a computer every day. You could probably go remote and it's going to be a win for everybody. It's been six months and counting of war in Ukraine. And an American-made weapon is helping Ukrainian forces turn the tide. David Martin reports. It's been a standard, largely unnoticed part of the American military arsenal for decades. But when HIMARS, an acronym which stands for High Mobility Artillery Rocket System, showed up in Ukraine, it changed the face of battle. This capability is giving the Ukrainians the potential to completely change the momentum and the direction of, the, of this war. Retired Lieutenant General Ben Hodges, former commander of the U.S. Army in Europe, says HIMARS, which fires a 200-pound warhead up to 50 miles and hits within 10 feet of its intended target, has virtually eliminated Russia's numerical advantage. You don't have to have hundreds of artillery rounds to achieve the same effect as one rocket fired from HIMARS. Is Ukraine still outgunned? In numbers, I'd say yes, but what really matters is effect. And the effect that Ukraine is achieving seems to me at this point to be superior to what the Russians are able to deliver. Since June, the U.S. has shipped Ukraine 16 HIMARS launchers and thousands of rockets, which defense officials say the Ukrainians have used to attack more than 350 Russian command posts, ammo dumps, supply depots, and other high-value targets far back from the front lines. The HIMARS and other long-range capabilities have, have given the Ukrainians the ability to reach out and hit targets that the Russians would have thought were safe. Why can't they just move all these command posts and ammo dumps further back from the front line and get them out of range? You still got to get that ammunition to the guns, which are closer to the front. So now you've increased the distance that the trucks have to move carrying very heavy ammunition and they've lost well over a thousand of their trucks in this campaign so far. And of course, the result is significant reduction in the amount of Russian artillery and rocket fire impacting on Ukrainian forces. All that from a weapon made at this Lockheed Martin plant in rural Arkansas, a seemingly minor outpost in America's vast military industrial complex, which is now racing to catch up with a sudden demand for HIMARS. We'll give you a brief overview of the chassis line here. We accompanied the Pentagon's chief weapons buyer, Dr. William LaPlante, as he made plans to dramatically increase production. 
We have to plan for at least to double this. Production here probably will need to double. How long can you keep that up? As long as the demand is needed. We can keep production lines open for 30 years. So you heard the man from the Pentagon, he said probably going to double production. Can you double production? Absolutely. Chief Operating Officer Frank St. John says the plant is currently turning out about 7,500 rockets a year. We have capacity to produce 10,000 rockets a year. That's a rocket every 10 minutes, if you do the math on that. And we're also doing similar analysis to potentially take that up to 12 or 14,000 rockets a year. So how fast can you do this? I would say on the order of 18 to 24 months to make any significant changes in, uh, in the production quantities. The nose cone carries a satellite guidance system which gives the rocket its sniper-like accuracy. But what impresses LaPlante most about HIMARS is not the sophistication of its technology, but the simplicity of its use. There are just three operators, probably 18 to 20 years old, and they can use this and they can use it effectively within a week. Okay, that is to me as important as its accuracy, it's reliable and can be done by 18-year-old Ukrainians. To see how HIMARS operates in the field, we went to the U.S. Army training range in Yakima, Washington. And they used the same tactics taught to the Ukrainians. This is the hide site where the HIMARS tries to conceal itself from enemy surveillance. Once it leaves here for its firing point, the HIMARS is liable to be detected and targeted. So the clock starts ticking. The HIMARS launcher has a top speed of 55 miles an hour, but off-road in the high desert, it's more like 35. Once it's out in the open, it has about five to seven minutes to find its firing position, train its rockets on the target, and fire. One rocket every few seconds. The crew chief of this HIMARS is Staff Sergeant Cammie White. How'd you guys do? We did well. What does that mean, well? Whenever we get a fire when ready, it's as fast as you can fire. So with that, I think our time was around three minutes. Three minutes from the time you got the mission to the time the, the rockets yes, took off. Yes, when the HIMARS fires, the rocket exhaust gives away its position. So it has to get out of there fast before the enemy can strike back. How long do you have to get out? Oh, as quickly as possible. And how long does that take? Roughly a minute. It's called shoot and scoot, and the Ukrainians are doing it now in their counteroffensive against Russian forces occupying Kherson, making the most of the 16 HIMARS provided by the U.S. 16 just doesn't sound like a lot. It's nowhere near what I think uh, Ukraine could use. I mean, look at the effect they've achieved with 16. Imagine if they had three or four times that many. This past week, the world took note of a sad anniversary. Princess Diana, gone 25 years. Historian and author Amanda Foreman reflects on the enduring legacy of the people's princess. True national mourning is a rare thing. I saw it 25 years ago, after the death of Princess Diana. In fact, I didn't just witness it, I was a part of it, along with Tens of thousands of others, I went to Buckingham Palace to lay flowers in honor of Diana's memory. You couldn't see an inch of sidewalk. It was just flowers everywhere and people in tears. It's strange to have such strong feelings for someone that you never knew. 
But to understand why the world erupted in grief then and why she still has meaning today, you have to realize how revolutionary she was. Diana transformed how we talk about emotions until she started being open about her own struggles, which included battling depression and an eating disorder. The whole subject of mental health was completely taboo for most people. She wasn't afraid to discuss her problems and to have someone who was so famous and privileged be willing to talk with such honesty helped millions to do the same. Diana avoided causes that were popular or photogenic to focus on helping some of the most marginalized people in society. At the height of the AIDS epidemic, she challenged the fear and stigma attached to the disease. On the lighter side, Diana loved fashion. By being unapologetically glamorous, she enabled women to show their femininity and still be taken seriously. And despite the sadness surrounding her divorce, she helped the monarchy to modernize itself. Looking back, I think that the tears for Diana came from a sense of real loss. She was the people's princess because she had become a selfless advocate for the least privileged among us. The greatest lesson that we can take from her life is that with courage and honesty, our vulnerabilities and weaknesses can be turned into our greatest strengths. She's been reporting on the Supreme Court for nearly five decades, breaking some of the biggest stories of the era. Nina Totenberg is in conversation with correspondent Nancy Cordes. When the lively hour of argument was over, all the justices except Clarence Thomas had asked many questions. Nina Totenberg's lifelong search for facts began with fiction and her admiration for an intrepid teenage amateur detective. I wanted to be like Nancy Drew, and that meant I wanted to be something of a sleuth. Nina has been on the case ever since, first as a print reporter, and now for nearly 50 years as legal affairs correspondent for National Public Radio, where she's known for her scoops. Publicly, some Republican senators are standing by the nominee. It was her reporting that caused the 1987 Supreme Court nomination of Douglas Ginsburg to go up in smoke. What I found was that he was a regular smoker of marijuana. He was sunk. He was sunk. In her new memoir, published by Simon & Schuster, part of CBS parent company Paramount Global, Nina Totenberg writes that growing up in the 1950s, this kind of sleuthing was not necessarily in the cards. I think my mother thought that I would be someone's administrative assistant like she had been, and that was the best I would be able to do. Her father, the great concert violinist Roman Totenberg, thought differently. Because he played with women musicians, he never suggested to me, oh, you can't do that because you're a woman. She found she was the only woman in most newsrooms until she arrived at NPR in 1975. Women were everywhere at NPR doing all kinds of things and in, even in administrative positions because we paid so little, no man would take the job. She became fast friends with All Things Considered co-host Susan Stamberg and reporters Linda Wertheimer and Cokie Roberts. Today, they're known as NPR's founding mothers. But back then, their cluster of cubicles was dubbed the fallopian jungle. I took it with a grain of salt at a kind of a compliment because the jungle, you wouldn't dare go in there, right? 
right? <laughs> I'd be afraid. Yeah, so that's fine. Don't screw with me. One of her biggest scoops came in 1991, when she uncovered something explosive Judge. during confirmation hearings for Supreme Court nominee Judge. Clarence Thomas. I found out that there was a woman named Anita Hill who had accused then-Judge Thomas of sexual harassment when she worked for him. Anita Hill agreed to speak to her. The relationship, she said, became even more strained when Thomas, in work situations, began to discuss sex. So help you God. I do. And I then Hill spoke to Congress. He talked about pornographic material. Republicans were furious and took aim at Totenberg. You've been beating the drum on this one almost every day since it started. I do not appreciate being blamed just because I do my job and report the news. Listeners got to know her voice and her face, which ended up plastered all over the ultimate NPR status symbol. Can we talk about the... Nina Totenberg, tote bag. The tote bag. I was initially very suspicious about it, but I, I love this. It makes me look great. Nina also had a knack for befriending Supreme Court justices long before they were named to the court. I first knew Scalia when he was in the Nixon administration, and the same was true for Chief Justice Rehnquist. Her most famous friendship with the late Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg began 21 years before Ginsburg was nominated, when she was still a law professor at Rutgers University. I was reading a brief of hers. There's a whole bunch in the brief that I didn't understand. Her telephone number was there, and I called her up, and I got an hour-long lecture. That led to more calls and dinners, where they talked about music and theater and fashion. They gossiped. And they leaned on each other as they both cared for dying husbands. Ruth was married to Marty Ginsburg for 56 years, Nina to Senator Floyd Haskell for 19 years. She knew you weren't looking at her as a source. She knew you were looking at her as a friend. If you have a Supreme Court justice friend, you don't ask about their work. Otherwise, they won't be your friend. After Haskell's death, Nina met a widower, Dr. David Rines, and Ruth Bader Ginsburg married them in 2000. I wasn't too worried about it, so we told my mother. And I said, not a rabbi, we got a judge. She said, a judge? I said, but she's Jewish. I don't care. It's Ruth Bader Ginsburg. I don't care. She's not a rabbi. Rines could cook, which meant even more dinners with RBG, who always requested the bouillabaisse. She would eat chicken, but her favorite was seafood. And in her last years of life, that last year, we cooked for her 23 consecutive Saturdays. Nina's book is titled Dinners with Ruth. In it, she describes how Ruth and Dr. Rines would sneak away to discuss Ruth's medical challenges, including lung cancer, leaving Nina in the dark. And I couldn't say anything. So for six weeks, I lied to her, basically. <laughs> Why did you feel like you had to lie? A, it was a HIPAA violation, and B, I didn't want any, any leak. Do you have any regrets? I, I do think that I was born on, under a very bright star. Nina interviewed RBG in public dozens of times. Their last private conversation was by phone a few days before Ruth died two years ago this month. 
I said to her, you are my darling friend, and I'm just, it's been one of the great parts of my life that you've been my friend. It turns out that the hard-hitting Nina Totenberg may not be as tough as she would have her sources believe. I think I learned a lot from my friends to be a more generous person, how to be a better friend. I think they taught me to be a better person. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. Angie's list is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is. And it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. Filmmaker Ken Burns has said of his latest documentary, he doesn't expect to work on a more important film. With Susan Spencer, we take a closer look. This wing of the family all died in the Holocaust. All of them. All of them. We're that really dark right. chapter in history left an indelible mark on filmmaker Sarah Botstein's family. They died in the ghetto of Typhus. They were killed in a killing center. They died in all the different ways that the Jews in that part of the world died. So it was a deeply personal experience for Botstein to work on a documentary about the Holocaust with Ken Burns. So much has been written about the Second World War, about the Holocaust. Why did you even want to take another look? Seeing it through the lens of the United States helps us, I believe, understand the Holocaust itself in a, in a much different and perhaps fresher perspective. We tell ourselves stories as a nation. One of the stories we tell ourselves is that we're a land of immigrants. But in moments of crisis, it becomes very hard for us to live up to those stories. Their film, Seven Years in the Making and airing on PBS later this month, is entitled The U.S. and the Holocaust. In painstaking detail, Burns, Botstein, and their partner Lynn Novick unravel how America reacted to this humanitarian catastrophe. We failed. You know, we let in more human beings than any other sovereign nation. But if we'd done 10 times that many, I think we would have failed. And it's a failure at every level. It's a failure in the executive. It's a failure in the legislative branch. It's a failure in media. It's a failure in uh, the general population. Many white Protestant Americans came to fear they were about to be outnumbered and outbred by the newcomers and their offspring that they were being replaced. 
The documentary cites shocking national polls to make the point. In 1938, just two weeks after Kristallnacht, a night of terror when Nazis attacked and murdered Jews across Germany, only one in five Americans said the U.S. should admit more Jewish exiles. The following year, that number was one in 10. Was this because of a lack of information? We cannot blame America's lack of action on not knowing. There was a great deal of coverage in the newspapers of what Hitler was doing as the situation got worse and worse and worse. Deportations, mass killings, thousands of refugees trying to get out, lines at consulates. All of this was known. But instead of opening our doors, we shut them ever more tightly, says Lynn Novick, who partly blames widespread American xenophobia. Celebrity aviator Charles Lindbergh was the face of it. He was an icon, he was a hero, they had songs about him, and he really believed a kind of ugly, anti-Semitic, white supremacist ideology that the Nordic race should prevail. He said these things, Americans clapped. One thing that has been cited in this discussion has to do with the context when this all happened. The depression was going on at the time, among other things. There was a lot of leftover isolationism from World War I. Does any of that in your mind give America a pass? I can't give America a pass on what happened and what we failed to do, but I can definitely appreciate the challenges and difficulties that our leaders faced. We did not play a role in the murder of the Jews. We just did not do enough as a good people to get the people on the edge of this cataclysm out. And that is on us, on us, and will forever be on us. Sharp limits on immigration had been in effect since the mid-20s when quotas were set for each country. During the war, a State Department official named Breckenridge Long enforced those restrictions with gusto. He also assiduously worked to sort of suppress information about the true nature of the Nazi threat to the Jewish people of Europe. So reports came across his desk that he should have passed on to other people that he just buried. Reports such as extermination is a policy. Yes, exactly. We made it hard technically to get here. Paperwork, visas, affidavits, sponsors. I mean, you can appreciate now how hard it is just to renew your passport. And you're now stateless. You're in a country that's been taken over. We made it very onerous and hard to get here. So all of this, or most of this, is just paperwork. paperwork. Mm -hmm. And just imagine for anyone who came here, all of this had to happen. In Lynn Novick's office, case files tell the story of World War II refugees desperate to get to America. Among them, a household name. When we started to make the film, it came to our attention that Anne Frank's family had tried to get to America, a fact that I did not know. And I don't think most people know that. I don't think most Americans know that. We all know Anne Frank. Everybody knows Anne Frank. And to think that she could be here talking to you right now if America had had a different immigration policy. That, you believe that? that? You I absolutely believe that. I absolutely believe that. 
By 1945, two out of every three European Jews had been murdered. Yet even then, only 5% of Americans wanted to let more refugees in, while more than a third said we should admit even fewer. That's after you've seen the horrific images of the liberation of the camps and the bodies piled up and the emaciated people. That is a tough pill to swallow, very tough pill to swallow. You know? Are you worried that people will interpret this as sort of a indicting our nation, if you will? I, I don't see this at all as an indictment. I really don't. I think we're really, truly trying to just tell the story of what happened. It's not shaming America. It's thinking about how to do better. Hundreds of white nationalists storming the University of Virginia. At the very end, there's this montage with no narration. Charlottesville, a build-a-wall rally, a report of attack on a synagogue. What did you intend to convey with that montage? There is, right now, all of the elements coalescing for something bad to happen again. You felt a sense of urgency I, growing. I feel, I feel a sense of urgency. We're not trying to equate anything with the Holocaust. That would be a, a, a horrible, a horrible thing to do. We're just saying, let's not get there again as, a, as, as human beings, please. Let's not get there again. They just might be the most famous mother-daughter team on the planet. Hillary and Chelsea Clinton. And this morning they're talking over a little lunch with Nora O'Donnell. How would you describe a gutsy woman? I think a gutsy woman is determined to make the most of her own life, but also to try to use whatever skills, talents, persistence that she has uh, to bring others along. Well, and you can do it in any field or in any area. And so whether that's sports or activism or the arts, it was really important to us that there be a wide spectrum of women who have been hugely gutsy for themselves and for right. their communities. We're hitting the road to shine a light on women who inspire us to be bolder and braver. Hillary Clinton has a new campaign, along with her daughter Chelsea, telling the stories of gutsy women in a new docuseries on Apple TV+. You literally become one with yourself. Do you think people like gutsy women? I think some people like gutsy women. I think some people are afraid and threatened by gutsy women. I think some are put off by gutsy women. Women like comedian Amy Schumer, whom they met for tea. I did go through 10 years of being like majorly trolled. You won't be able to relate to this. No, not majorly at all. Majorly trolled. We want this other version of women. We want you to be pretty and quiet and effusive mm -hmm. and, and only a supporting cast member. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, just the series shows the former first lady and first okay. daughter, who was mostly shielded from public view, in a new light. I'm not of the generation that grew up with rappers, male or female, and Chelsea has for years been trying to educate both Bill and me. And it's an ongoing effort. <laughs> an ongoing effort. I'm a savage. Which is how the former presidential candidate found herself painting with Grammy-winning artist Megan Thee Stallion. And I was trying to please everybody and make everybody else happy. I was losing myself, I felt like. So I just had to remember who I was, and I had to start spending a little bit more time by myself to just, you know, get back into me.
Have you really listened to her music? Yes. Yeah. Ask her, did she really listen to it before the Apple TV Plus series? <laughs> no. The no. answer is no, but you did. I did. And, but my mother did all her homework, Nora. <laughs> what did you like about her? I thought she was unapologetic mm -hmm. in the way that she claimed her sexual being. She has a stage persona. She just put it out there and kind of opened herself up. And deal with it or ignore me, but yeah. don't minimize me and don't patronize me. The series confronts difficult topics. One episode is fully dedicated to rejecting hate. They wanted to intimidate us. They wanted to silence us. We could back down or we could double down. And so we doubled down. I was also struck, Chelsea, when you said you can't remember a time where hate and, quote, the whisper of violence didn't surround your family. It's true, Nora. I mean, I remember being a little girl in Arkansas and people yelling hateful things at us, at my parents. I remember in 92 when my father was running for president and someone threw a, a bag filled with probably red food coloring, but they said, you know, this is the blood of an aborted baby, like, this should have been you. Like, really active, hateful rhetoric and actions that just permeated life when I was a kid. Personal experiences... Well, I bought it at Dillard's. ...punctuate almost every episode. You also reveal why you wear a pantsuit. Yes, yes. You know, I didn't know that story. <laughs> I didn't know that story. It's like by far and away the greatest revelation I had. A state visit to Brazil led to some compromising photographs. I was sitting on a couch and the press was let in. There were a bunch of them shooting up. Some of those photos were then used to sell lingerie. And all of a sudden the White House gets alerted to these billboards that show me sitting down with, I thought my legs together, but the way it's shot, it's sort of suggestive. And then I also began to have the experience of having photographers all the time. I'd be on a stage, I'd be climbing stairs, so and they'd creepy. be below me. It's so creepy. I just couldn't deal with it. So I started wearing like, pants. You know, do you think there is an effort underway to silence women and to intimidate them? Yes, I do. While pantsuits may be synonymous with Hillary Clinton, it is another decision she's well known for that she considers gutsy. The gutsiest thing I ever did privately was stay in my marriage. It was not easy and it was something that only I could decide. And then in my public life, running for president, I mean, it was hard. It was really hard. And it was, you know, trying to be on that tightrope without a net and nobody in front of me because it hadn't been done before. I guess I was surprised that you said that staying in your marriage was gutsier than running for president. Well, it was in terms of my private life. Um, it was really hard. And as you know, everybody had an opinion about it. Uh, people who I'd never met had very strong opinions about it. Um, and it took a lot of, honestly, prayer and thoughtfulness and talking to people I totally trusted uh, to really think through, uh, because it was all being done in public, Nora. So mm -hmm. it made it even more um, painful and difficult, but I have no regrets. Having no regrets for both Hillary and Chelsea Clinton is another expression of gutsiness, which they hope has universal appeal.
There seems to be an undercurrent of a message throughout this whole series that you're trying to show women, tell women to be gutsy, to stand up for yourself. Exactly. Well, and also, Nora, with the hope that those women's examples can be inspiring to anyone who might be watching. Mm -hmm. um, men and boys. Men and just, boys. Yeah. <laughs> women and girls. Um, but I think also so that people hopefully can see part of their own life, whether their own struggles, their own opportunities in the women's stories that we're sharing so that they hopefully can then be a little bit closer to feeling, well, I can be gutsy too. Against all odds, Mikhail Gorbachev, whose funeral was held yesterday, lifted the Iron Curtain, ended the Cold War, and transformed global politics. While the current leader of Russia, Vladimir Putin, laid flowers on Gorbachev's casket Thursday, Putin did not attend the funeral. The Kremlin says he was too busy. Ted Koppel takes us back to a moment in time when he witnessed Gorbachev's final hours as president of the Soviet Union. Christmas Day, 1991. Soviet President Mikhail Gorbachev arrives at the Kremlin for what will mark the end of the Soviet Union and his last day as president. Back then, I was still at ABC. For reasons of his own, Gorbachev has granted an ABC News production team and me exclusive access. We join him in his Kremlin office. There's an innocuous-looking briefcase holding, we are told, the nuclear launch codes. His successor, Boris Yeltsin, will have one of his people pick it up shortly. The American president, George H.W. Bush, is celebrating the Christmas holiday at Camp David. Gorbachev calls to say goodbye. Hello. Да, Джордж, дорогой, приветствую. George, my dear friend, I greet you. Поздравить вас с Рождеством и Барбару. Let me begin from the by saying something pleasant. I would like to say Merry Christmas to you and to Barbara and to your entire family. It's how the final hours go. A series of goodbyes culminating with a farewell broadcast to the Russian people. Dear fellow citizens. An hour after the resignation speech, I'm invited back into the office. Third, I understand we're saying goodbye. But I'm not saying farewell. <laughs> I hope not. Gorbachev's answer to an innocuous question resonates strangely now, more than 30 years later, here in the United States. What are you going to do tomorrow? Tomorrow I will still be here sorting out some papers and uh, some personal effects. Some will be sending, uh, will be sent to the archives. Some will be destroyed. Some I will take to my country home city apartment. So I have to do it. It's the big wash. And a haunting answer to an earlier question. Was there a Russian fable that might explain to an American child why Gorbachev, so popular in our country, was being forced out of office in his? Centuries ago, there was a young ruler in the Orient, and he wanted to rule in a different way, in a more human way, in his kingdom. 
and he asked uh, the views of the wise men. And it took uh, 10 years to bring uh, 20 carts with volumes of advice. He said, when am I going to read all that? I have to govern my country. Uh, 10 years later, they brought him just 10 volumes of advice. He said, that too is too much. Five years later, he was brought just one volume, small volume. But unfortunately, 25 years had passed and he was on his deathbed. And when the wise man looked at the book, he didn't even give the book to that dying man. He said, well, all in all, all that is here can be summarized in a simple formula. People are born, people suffer, and people die. People are born, people suffer, and people die. Mikhail Gorbachev would live another 30 years, widely admired throughout much of the world, for bringing an end to a communist Soviet Union. But Gorbachev was mostly ignored and sometimes even reviled at home for the very things that made him so popular in the West. Serena will take one final bow. Serena Williams had a magical run at this year's U.S. Open in New York, and the sight of many of her triumphs bears the name of another tennis legend who changed lives on and off the court. James Brown caught up with Jeannie Ash to remember her husband. With its white roof silhouetted by the New York City skyline, for 25 years, Arthur Ashe Stadium, a cathedral of tennis and home of the U.S. Open, has hosted some of the game's greatest moments while honoring one of America's greatest athletes, Arthur Ashe. Any name could have been put on this stadium, but they used a name who was about inclusion. Janie Matusami Ashe was Arthur's wife. She was at the opening of the stadium named for her late husband 25 years ago. What could be a more wonderful memorial than a tennis stadium named for Arthur Ashe? The luminaries across the globe who showed up says what to you? All of the people who were here that night got to see Desmond Tutu. It was an opportunity that the name and the event provided for everyone who was here. And that so spoke to who Arthur was. And Arthur Ashe was much more than a tennis player. Born in segregated Richmond, Virginia, he was the first black man to win the U.S. Open in 1968, followed by historic triumphs at the Australian Open That's it. And, he's done it. and Wimbledon. He was married to Jeannie from 1977 until his death in 1993 from complications of AIDS, which he is believed to have contracted from a blood transfusion during heart surgery. 
Jeannie says she wasn't just married to a world-famous athlete, but to an activist who used his racket and his voice. Are there still country clubs uh, in this country where you wouldn't be welcome? Oh, yeah, there are some tournaments I can't play in Alabama. Or... With his fame, he spoke out on race relations and inequality. In these times, 1968, it's really a mandate that you do something. You must. Arthur's activism mimicked his tennis play. Methodical, strategic, nuanced, yet impactful. I think what may have gotten under his skin was that he didn't feel he was doing enough. Not doing more meaning. There were African Americans who were marching, who were getting their heads beat in, getting hosed down. Arthur wasn't doing that, but he still felt that what he was doing was opening doors in his way. Opening doors his way meant getting arrested for protesting apartheid in South Africa, being a voice for AIDS awareness, and creating the National Junior Tennis League in 1969, which continues to bring the game to underserved communities. But for Jeannie, who is an award-winning photographer, and Arthur, it all came down to one thing. We often talked about how the public perceives the African-American image. The only image we would see would be of the way other people saw us, not images of how we saw ourselves. One of the reasons why I make photographs is to photograph my community, to photograph the love and the dignity that Arthur saw it on a very early date. The image was a profound way of showing our activism together as a couple. With his name and image adorned on the stadium walls, the legacy of Arthur Ashe continues to serve. What I want you to know is who Arthur Ashe was and why Arthur Ashe's name is on this magnificent structure. Thank you for listening. Please join us when our trumpet sounds again next Sunday morning. If you like CBS Sunday Morning with Jane Polly, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey.